Welcome to episode 202. Do you pay for food? And I mean like the whole grocery bill. Are you a cereal grocery shopper or a once every few weeks type? By the time you collect all of the receipts and bank statements and calculate how much money all of your food costs each month or even each year, you'll basically have to spend any of your savings on fixing your heart attack, which you just experienced. So you're spending all the dollars on the food and then the medicine. And many families and people are stuck in this cycle. Purchase the food, pay for the doctor. Which is why implementing a sugar or junk food tax to our economy could be a really effective means of impacting the food choices that you and your family make and reduce the size of your medical bill. All things that aren't super sexy to talk about, but really do matter in the grand scheme of your life experience. So, without further ado, grab your popcorn, let's get into it. Welcome to the How to Not Get Sick and Die podcast. You've tuned in because you want to start taking your health seriously so you don't, well, get sick and die. Here we talk all things health, nutrition, and human optimization. Let's jump into it with your host and resident scientist, Maddie Lansdowne. What's up, my healthy friends? Here we are in 2022. As you may or may not know by this point, it's my mission to coach 300 people to get control of their emotional eating so they can lose weight and actually keep it off without counting calories or eating rabbit food. And despite saying that, salads are wonderful, but living on not enough food and just green leaves is just not good enough. You feel hungry, you feel deprived, you feel the willpower slowly melting away over the course of your latest health kick. And it's just not sustainable in any way, unless you're like working towards some kind of competition or stage show, or like there's a very defined, clear goal of like, I have to operate this way until then. And then beyond that, I can return to normal. Uh, Eating rabbit food is a terrible idea. And counting calories for the most part doesn't help many people in the long term. It's a good awareness exercise. But anyway... That's the reason we run an emotional eating and body confidence program so that we're getting away from that skin deep superficiality of uh, just losing weight because society says I should and instead being deeply happy and content and at peace and being in a place of pride of who you are, your journey and your body. Anyway... Enough shameless (laughs) self-promotion. Either way, I'd love you to come and be involved. So, you can head over to the website or you can uh, join our Facebook group or do all of the the things to get in touch with me in order to inquire about that. I will put a link in the show notes below for you to check out that program. Uh, Anyway... So today we're talking about money and tax. And before you walk towards the balcony with a grim look on your face, hold up. (laughs) I'm going to make this as not boring as possible so that you can actually stay the course with me through this conversation today and have some decent knowledge on the topic. Because since we vote for some of the politicians that think that bringing this in is a good idea and, you know, that it's useful and it's going to be helpful and it's it's useful for us to know because we vote for these people. So we should uh, be informed about this uh, because it's not often that food and nutrition policy is the forefront of conversation because it's not very clickbaity. It's not very uh, headline provoking. You don't see it on the front page of the Herald Sun or the Age or whatever newspaper you, is, exists in your country. 
And uh, the thing is, too, that we live these incredibly unhealthy lives because they're so incredibly easy. Uh, And the way to make uh, unhealthy no longer easy is to take an interest in the decisions that we're making around our food, but more importantly, the decisions that uh, different people are making on our behalves because these people that make these decisions on our behalf, well, we need them to piss off, basically, because they're getting it all wrong. They're doing it in the name of economy, uh, finance, lobbyists and lobbyists is just another word for hey let's pay this person to do what they want (laughs) so whenever you hear that there's a lobbying group it's just a legally appropriate way to pay the right person off (laughs) um and so i basically want to break up this conversation as well because there's the truth is there's pros and cons and uh, when i was in uni i actually did um an assignment on this looking into this so i've looked into a lot of the data over the last five to ten years uh and it's it's definitely interesting which is why i want to do uh i want to cover pros and cons of of, you know both sides of this because i think there's some really valid arguments on either side uh, and they require equal amounts of consideration in my opinion so generally speaking with the rise of inflation being so high especially in 2022 uh, and the general cost of living going up understanding how this will affect the grocery bill uh, and the health of your family and your kids is really important to know because it's highly likely that you listening either plan to have kids or have them or even have grandkids uh, so knowing about you know the way you spend your money day to day in conjunction with the way that you fuel yourself and the family is i would argue of the utmost importance for any person that is in some way a leader in a family. Uh, When I say leader, I mean mums or dads, people that are leading the way. And mums are usually the people that are leading the way with nutrition, food and uh, role modeling how to show up in the world as both an adult, but also directing the kids on how they should treat themselves. So uh, on that topic, though, um, I want to deviate a little bit because we're talking, you know, we're talking about money and tax and, you know, that stuff's obviously so sexy um, and really fucking boring to be totally honest for most people which is why most people like their health are not on top of their money because it's really freaking boring and it's really freaking confusing uh, when you get down the rabbit hole but I'm going to do my best to make it clear understandable but there's a little quote that I want to not a quote a little story I want to share with you in regards to inflation and tax and money and that type of thing because I heard it myself on a podcast recently and I'm sorry I totally forget who to credit in this particular moment Um, but it's this podcast that they basically basically have live callers. So it's kind of mimics that old radio show radio show vibe. Um, and they had a they were talking about money and inflation and whatever. And they had a caller in having this conversation with this woman. Um, and the guy answering the question was basically, you know, has done very well for himself, uh, has kids, family, blah, blah, blah. And um, she was talking about her partner going into panic mode about the recession and and all of these problems that are happening in the world in relation to money. Uh, And that like, we've got to be careful and we've got to save money and, um, you know, we're going to lose our jobs and all this kind of stuff. And as she was sort of talking about his frugality uh, in the language that he uses and the things that he opposes uh, or oppresses her with in limiting her spending and this other type of thing, uh, you know, things in regards to controlling her, uh, her behavior and the kid's behavior, which is probably him just using his survival instincts really if we really look at it to be like shit i'm in panic mode and i've got to protect the family um but basically the podcast interviewer interrupts uh her and says has he always been strict with money has he always worried about money has he always been really hesitant to move towards investments or was he really troublesome uh getting the mortgage together when you bought your house um and she said yep yep 
Yep. He's always like thinking about saving the next 10 cents. And the podcast host basically says, that man's not waiting for a recession. He's always been in one. And it really just hit me hard, right? And reminded me about the years of the pandemic and how catastrophically damaging the news can be, right? The news, it can give you, it can supplant ideas in your mind about what's happening in the universe that actually have nothing to do with you and that you you can't, cannot influence or impact. And so, that, that listening to that podcast, it was a finance podcast of some sort. I forget, I'm sorry. But it just hit me like... Turn the news off. Stop listening to this inflation bullshit. Yes, sure. Statistically, it might be there. But like, whatever you focus on, you get more of. Uh, And and I've definitely learned that throughout my life. Um, And yes, sure, it's hard in the beginning to peel yourself away from this kind of um, emotional roller coaster. It's an addictive process. Being addicted to stress is a thing. You're probably stressed in a million other ways. But let that little story hit you. You know, have you or the people in your family or your mum or your dad or your partner always worried about money, always talking about the economy, always reading the latest newspaper and saying, oh, no, inflation is really hitting us hard. Oh, no, petrol prices. Because the reality is, for most people I know that talk about it, they are yet to have any type of economic experience which remotely has changed the bottom line for them. Now, I know you might be like, Matty, fucking shut up. What do you know? You're a single guy living in Melbourne with no dependents. (laughs) And yes, yes, you're right. Uh, But this conversation that I was watching um, and many of my mentors that have built themselves from nothing, have kids, families, um, you know, complicated kids, family environments, you know, um, which require all sorts of different levels of money and commitment. And so, I take my own guidance from a combination of my own lived experience in combination with what my mentors and the people that I look up to um, share. And then I kind of meld it all together. So, anyway, I hope that you can take away that idea. That man's not waiting for a recession. He's always been in one. And start to think about how that applies to your own life. All right. Now, let's bust into this tax stuff. So, we're talking about sugar tax. So, it's been a few years now that the Australian politicians have been talking about bringing in a sugar tax. And if you're not from Australia and you're listening to this, well... You're in the right place because there's 50 countries in the world which have been experimenting with sugar taxes. Um, And the data that I talk about is going to be from a bunch of different countries as well because um, it's something that a lot of countries are considering because they obviously are looking at the health outcomes and we're in a generation where today's children, so Gen Z uh, and millennials as well. But So, millennials are starting to predictably, my generation, live shorter lives than their parents because basically we've had sugar and vegetables oil laden toxin foods from a very very young age whereas our parents didn't get them at such a young age and now gen z so you know the um millennials that are having kids uh the gen z they're basically fucked (laughs) because not only are their parents are their mums and their dads absolutely loaded with 20 30 40 years worth of um well i mean millennials are not yet 40 but basically in that situation where they've been eating sugar, terrible, terrible sugar foods, vegetable oils, toxins, chemicals, um, bag of box or a can stuff with all this stuff we don't have research on yet to know if it's devastating. They've basically been building their own human body since the day they were born with this shit and are now um, creating offspring which have catastrophically high numbers of allergies, of um, in- food insensitivities, uh, with uh, reactions to different things, to autism, to mental health issues – 
And this is very much a symptom of the deterioration of the biological vehicle that is the human body. And so, one way that in a capitalist society that we can tackle these problems is the utilization of tax. Um, And obviously, most people have a negative idea of what tax is. They're like, it's something I have to pay to somebody and I don't know who that somebody is and I don't know where it goes. So, fuck the tax man. (laughs) And look, I was there a long time ago too. Um, However, in many instances, not all, but in many instances, tax uh, allows many first world countries to be first world countries because the government can accumulate uh, an amount of money that then goes towards um, things that are helpful. However, as I've also learnt on my journey of truth... It's not as clear-cut as it may seem, and it's very, very difficult to track money from the public eye once it's paid into the system and to where it went and who got it and did it end up where it should have gone. And, and it's like the complexities of medical research is that there's so many factors in a, a national a national or even statewide or even local council-wide um, economic incentive or tax system that it's very, very hard to keep up with. However, the goal here is to have a positive impact on the health of the population by introducing a sugar tax. And I want to go through, what have I got here? One, two, three, four, five, five big uh, four agreements. Is that the right word? Four arguments. That's better. Um, In regards to why a sugar tax is actually a good idea. And so, the first one is uh, really blatant, which I basically just covered, which is the discouragement of the consumption of sugary foods. Now, the idea of this is because... we saw the same thing with tobacco, right? Is that tobacco and sugar have a very similar misuse profile in the way that uh, an individual or a human will engage with it, behave with it, um, include it in their lives, use it, that type of thing. And what we've noticed too over the collection of decades of um, tobacco data is that the cost of sugar, and I mean that economically and health-wise, is very similar to that of tobacco as well. Like, we know that tobacco can cause all sorts of health issues, cancer, um, dementia, breakdown of the body, muscle atrophy, heaps of different stuff. And we know that long-term consumption of sugar can do the same thing, basically. Dysregulates the body and results in many similar diseases and deficiencies in the body. So, we've got tobacco, which has got a history of being one taxed, but two, an entire campaign for years, which is arguably still going very, very strong in order to convince people not to consume tobacco. However, um, what we do know with sugar is that uh, it's a bit more confusing and this is sort of me just speaking here, is that we need to eat. And this is what was one of the challenges that people have with um, you know, getting off sugar or getting off any type of food that is unhelpful. And it is simply that when you get off alcohol, you don't need alcohol to live. Like your human vessel doesn't need alcohol to be a surviving organism. In the same way, it doesn't need tobacco and in the same way that it doesn't need heroin or cocaine. However, when we're trying to get off sugar... It's pretty confusing because vegetables are sugar, starch is sugar, food is food, and then it's like some food is good, some food is bad. So it's a bit of it's a bit the the waters are a bit more muddy when we're starting to talk about discouraging sugary foods and comparing it to tobacco because you definitely don't need tobacco, right? In addition with this, the World Health Organization have recommended specifically that Australia introduce a tax because Basically, the the health system is showing evidence that it's got catastrophic shit going on and you don't need to walk far outside of your home in a remotely populated area to see 
that that is the case. In fact, probably in your own family, you can already collect this information by knowing how many people have to take a handful of pills at the start of the day and the end of the day. And when you catch up with people, you know how many people are talking about their health issue or their weight issue or their disease issue or their doctor's appointment or whatever it might be. You don't need to be the who to know that. So picture this, right? Unlocking your potential, conquering emotional eating and gaining insights directly from a health and nutrition expert such as myself. That's what we do inside the Healthy Mums Collective Facebook group, which is currently free to join. If you've ever felt trapped by food challenges, struggled with maintaining a healthy lifestyle, or yearned for a community that understands the reasons why you've yo-yo dieted for years, then there's a new chapter waiting to be written. And this is your chance to start writing it by joining us all on Facebook Lives, on engaging posts that push you out of your comfort zone and into growth, and Q&A sessions with me. All of this works as a platform to begin changing your emotional eating problems for good. Oh, and also, as a special gift, you receive my transformative How to Turn Food into Self-Confidence ebook. And that's also for free. I get it. Skepticism might linger. You might think, Maddie, I've heard these ads and I'm not sure. Well, at least a quarter of the members inside the Healthy Mums Collective Facebook group have been paying clients of my emotional eating program at some point over the last three or four years. So if you're not sure, you can post in the group and ask to find out if I'm the real deal or not. It's totally up to you. To join us in the free Healthy Mums Collective and to end your emotional eating and feel good in your own skin and begin that journey, pop down to the show notes below, click the link and breeze through three simple entry questions. Join today and let's embark on a journey of growth and empowerment. The link is in the show notes below. Um, all right, number two. Reason number two as to why a health tax... A health tax. <laughs> I feel taxed as a healthy person, let me tell you. My food bill is way more. Um, no, what I meant to say was number two is raising revenue. So, this is um, the you know an argument for sugar tax, which is um, the fact that obviously taxing something means that uh, a big pile of money ends up somewhere, right? And in theory, you want to be able to use that money for good. Right, because I guess a lot of people, you know, we assume we pay tax and it just goes to paid politicians, and we see none of it. And in some cases, that might actually be true, and in some cases, it might not be true. I mean, we do have pretty good lifestyle and facilities here in Australia, so someone is paying for that somehow. Hopefully, we are because we use it, we pay for it. Amazing, you know, and that's obviously a very simplified, basic overview of such a complex system. But they know from uh, so Mexico is one of the countries that brought in a sugar tax, and Mexico. Mexico in two years uh, managed to raise two billion US dollars. That's a B. Two billion US dollars. Um, so obviously, that gives any medical system the capacity to do something with that money um, in regards to developing health programs and initiatives, which is what you would want the intention to be, right? It's it's like, um, you know, when you look at the tobacco thing, it wasn't just a tax. It was a whole marketing campaign, a branding campaign, a legislation campaign in regards to the way that um, uh, tobacco companies could act in the marketplace. Like it was a whole campaign from the human all the way through to the suppliers of cigarettes. Um, so, a lot happened there. So, in the raising of capital in paying for a sugar tax, you would hope the intention of that money is to go towards health programs and health initiatives that continue to improve the health of the people that are paying that tax, right? Um, and they they also did it in Hungary. So, there's, there's 50 countries that have tried this. Um, they did it in Hungary. 
And so they raised 58 million US dollars in Hungary, which is 1% of their public health insurance fund. So it's quite a significant amount of money to have raised. And I know you might think 1% doesn't sound like much, but let's go back to the 58 million. You could probably do a couple of good things with 58 million. Um, and so... You know, it, it it bolsters the strength of the health system to be able to provide health solutions. Um, and they were like, uh, based on this data and data from a number of places in the US, because there's a few US jurisdictions that have tried it as well um, for periods of time, because we're really just, you know, the last 10 years, we're really collecting data for the first time, people trying this for the first time. Um, and so Australia did a, a modeling study. So the Australian government did a, a study in 2017, um, a few years ago now, but still the data that we're pulling on to make some of these decisions and they found that in 2017 that there would be a we would raise about 642.9 million dollars so over half a billion dollars uh, based on the sugar tax that we would implement here in Australia and and obviously we, we've got to talk about what sugar tax means because the word sugar it's like that's going to be you know it's, it's going to be legislated right as to what exactly is considered a sugar food. And you might call it a junk food tax, which makes it even more vague and colloquially known as like anything that's kind of delicious, <laughs> you know? Um, and so we obviously have to get super clear and I've got a little bit I want to share in a minute, but a lot of these taxes are focused on particular food food items. Um, and we'll talk about that in a moment too. But with $642.9 million, you'd want to think the Australian government would probably do something really helpful with that, right? Um, and build into that tobacco-like approach to food with, with that multi-tiered approach with cash to hit other areas like the marketing, like the legislation. You know, they shouldn't be allowed to market to children, for instance. Maybe they shouldn't be allowed to um, use bright colours that speak to, you know, speak to children and speak to our evolutionary desire to hunt for fruit and carbohydrate-rich foods. You know, maybe, maybe all of this should happen. Obviously, it's going to be a tricky space to enter because sugar companies run the world. They're some of the most wealthy uh, companies in on the planet that contribute to the running of Western countries. Um, so it's one thing, of course, to um, tax the food, but it's another thing to be like, hey, what else are you going to provide us to eat because you've just made uh, this too expensive, right? Um, another one is... And this is an interesting little positive, uh, and I actually pulled, it, pulled this out of an old assignment um, that I did, and... and it's that there's greater benefit to the lower socioeconomic status people of Australia and the Western countries. And it's like, hang on, if the people um, at the lower end of the spectrum, economically speaking and financially speaking, are unable to afford the cheap shit they're already buying because it's what they can afford, and then we apply a tax, how on earth is this going to be of greater benefit to lower socioeconomic people? And that's a good question. Well, the reality is that it's as simple as this, which is if you make less cheap shit less in number, then you're unable to buy less cheap shit. Uh, the other thing is that the most negatively affected group of society for obesity, cardiovascular disease, diabetes, cancer is the lower socioeconomic status group, which have a higher consumption of sugar, right? It's not It's not like devastatingly different, um, but their numbers of, of those diseases are higher. And so, you're going to get a disproportionate positive impact in the lower socioeconomic groups for two reasons. One, the removal of those foods from their diet means that, um, or the limitation of those foods will mean that obesity rates, uh, in theory, and cardiovascular disease, diabetes will go down. However, also, 
What are they going to eat instead? Ideally, in an ideal world, they're going to go towards more natural foods, less stuff that's from a bag, a box or a can. Uh, And the other thing is too, it's kind of threefold actually, is that their medical bills will climb. And this was stated in the 2017 modelling study that the lower socioeconomic um, status group of Australians can expect their medical medical bills to continue climbing if this tax is not implemented to curb or slow the onset of the diseases which they can expect to incur. And you might be listening thinking like, well, I'm not really lower socioeconomic. Um, and most people listening to podcasts are not low, lower socioeconomic. However, the numbers aren't hugely different between lower socioeconomic, middle class and high socioeconomic. It's really not that much different. It, it's enough that it's st- statistically insignificant and therefore we can say the lower socioeconomic will benefit more greatly from a tax like this. Um, however... <laughs> Everybody else is still still getting fat, sick, and nearly dead if we're not, not going to make changes to our behavior. Um, and the other reason, I guess, it might impact lower socioeconomic people is because people in middle class or high class are possibly ill. They're not affected by the... Um, the, the tax at all. You know what I mean? Like they're not att- affected by the fact that their Mars bars have gone up 15 cents. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like it's negligible. Anyway, that's a conversation for the next podcast. Um, this is a really good argument, actually. This is I thought this was pretty cool um, until I read into it a bit more. <laughs> Maddie ruins everything. Um, so, number four here I've got is the reformulation argument. So, what happened in the United Kingdom? So, the UK did it specifically for sugar-sweetened beverages. And a lot of the data that's out there so far is based on sugar-sweetened beverages. So, your sodas, um, your fruit juices, your soft drinks, that type of thing. Um, And what the UK found, um, and their study was quite interesting because they were one of the few studies that were able to present in some way a measurable health benefit in their study from adding a tax because it's such a complex path to be like, So, if we tax this, then the health outcomes change in this area because there's just so much involved, right? But what happened in the UK is that actually purchasing didn't really go down, which is like, oh, shit, this tax isn't working. However, it had an impact in another way. It rolled out to, to change things in another way. What it led to was that... Uh, many of the sugar companies reduced their sugar content in their beverages by 10% so that they could avoid the sugar tax. So, this whole podcast so far, I've been talking about how how this affects you, the consumer, as someone who goes to the supermarket and makes a purchase, right? However... This has, happened, this has had influence on the other end, which is the supplier, the, the creator, the inventor of the product, um, where they were like, hang on, we as a company don't want to have to incur this tax because, well, it'll either mean that we push away customers that we would already have had or we have to incur the cost ourselves in the manufacture process and therefore increasing our manufacture costs. So, what we'll do is we'll write a new recipe Uh, in order for us to be able to make drinks that still have sugar in them but are not high enough in sugar content that they qualify to be a part of this tax, which is pretty cool, right? It's pretty cool. It's like, okay, there was a positive impact on industry, um, which means that we're getting less sugary um, consumption of different things. Now, there's a dark side to this, of course, but I'll talk about that on the next one. Um, But on face value, that's pretty good, right? 
where in a way maybe it keeps these sugar companies accountable to the kinds of shit that they're putting into our food and, and makes them slow down because God knows where these sugar companies are going to be 10 years from now. Like possibly the sugar content of some of these things has doubled or they've come up with other another like false molecule that doesn't exist in nature that addicts us to the process even more. So I'm all for something that causes a, um, a change in behavior to industry. So I think this is a relatively positive observation on face value. The other thing too is that um, point number five um, is the relationship between higher sugar sweetened beverage consumption and the risk of death. So what they found in Mexico's study was that with it in in the areas now different areas and different jurisdictions went about it in a slightly different way. So there's a lot of variability. Everywhere that they found there was a ten percent price increase in regards to the particular product they were buying on as a whole. They were able to correlate that with a three percent relative reduction in obesity and overweight prevalence, particularly in adolescent females. So that's pretty cool. It's like if we increase the price by 10%, we get a 3% reduction in obesity and overweight prevalence. And for those that are wondering, what is this medical jargon with the word prevalence? So it's just a word that refers to the overall number of cases of something, basically. So the total number of cases of a disease or a a thing in any given population at a specific time. So what I mean basically is price goes up 10%, 3% reduction in obesity, overweight, in females, adolescent females. However, I just want to do a cheeky little side note to give you a little bit of uh, reference and understanding to research jargon because this was used a lot in the last few years in the news to falsely represent information and it's regularly used to falsely represent information. Not intentionally, it's a research tool that is helpful, but you should also understand it. So... I just want to cover the difference between absolute difference and the difference between relative reduction, right? So there's we've got relative reduction and then we've got absolute reduction. So I just said that we've got a 10% price increase, 3% relative reduction in obesity. So what happens in this situation is absolute number is the actual number that things decreased. If you had 100 people and 8 people had the thing, had the obesity, then the The absolute number is eight, right? And say that's the control group. So what you might do is uh, you might run a study and your control group says, all right, eight in every 100 people are obese. Great, wonderful. Um, And then we ran our study group over here um, and we found that they had 12 people in every 100 were obese. Now, the absolute increase is four numbers, right? It's four people. We went eight to 12, which in the context of 100 isn't that many. However, this is how, and this I'm very much simplifying this, but this is how they use the idea of relative reduction to mislead you in regards to understanding or believing something is happening when it's possibly not. So if you look at the difference between the number eight and the number 12, percentage-wise, do you know the difference? It's 50%, right? Because it went up four, four is half of eight, that's 50% of eight. And so you might get an announcement that says, based on this study, we have a 50% relative reduction, or in this case, it's a relative increase in obesity because we went from eight in 100 to 12 in 100. So they just said 50% increase 
right? But we know it's actually only four people. So we've got to be careful when we're understanding the idea between relative reduction and absolute reduction or relative increase and absolute increase um, in these numbers. So whenever you hear that in the news or scientific media or anything, when they say relative reduction, and actually when somebody's talking to you about percentages and science and medicine and data, you should even clarify, is that absolute or relative? Because you know if it's relative, then it's in comparison to a standard that they defined within the study itself rather than, oh, it actually made a significant jump in numbers. Again, this doesn't mean that it's not true. It doesn't mean that it's not useful. I'm just giving you some pointers on how to interpret data a little more accurately. Um, The other thing to mention in the sugar-sweetened beverage consumption space with the Brits, so over in the UK, and, and we just talked about the fact that the UK didn't really see a drop in consumption that what they did see though was um the sugar that sugar sweetened beverage consumption reduced uh 5.9 billion calories per week so even though they still purchased their purchasing behavior was a particular way the reformulation of these recipes led to 5.9 billion calories per week less of overall consumption in the United Kingdom, which on average is about 6,500 calories per person per year, which is not a health outcome. However, we know, and if you listen to this podcast, you know, obviously, one of the major uh, influences and precursors to most chronic health issues, and not just chronic health issues. You might be 30 and getting injured all the time. You might be you might be young, middle-aged, old, and having all sorts of problems that are not chronic disease, inability to sleep, mental health issues, can't focus, um, can't, um, can't get it up in bed, don't feel sexually motivated, don't have confidence in, in yourself. So, it doesn't have to be a chronic disease in order for you to be negatively impacted by the food choices that you've been making for a long time. So, even though that over this over this um, annual sort of um, data collection exercise, they extrapolated that 6,500 calories per person per year was being consumed less than the year before. It's not a health outcome, but what it is, is a reduction in the consumption of energy and energy in the form of food and, food and drink, right? And we know that overconsumption of energy, uh, otherwise known as energy toxicity, which is another, it's a really nice way, I think, to phrase the idea of obesity or being overweight, um, is the fact that we overconsume food. We eat too much too often um, without nutrition, basically. Um, and so we know that reducing calories overall, although I'm not a calorie counter, we know that swapping out foods that put in the right amount of nutrition and the right amount of energy is what we need to do. So over the year, 6,500 calories per person per year down from the year before, I think that's fantastic. Uh, that's a really good outcome because if you think about it on the average consumption, you know, recommended daily intake, that's almost five days worth of food, uh, maybe a bit less, maybe about four days worth of food for most people, three to four, um, which is... Which is great. It's like fasting for three to four days of the year in theory from a caloric standpoint. So... There's a lot of there's a lot of benefits to introducing a sugar tax because, um, it, you know, ideally it's going to curb behaviour and, and we've we've seen we've seen this in a lot of different studies. Um, and I'm curious to know. I would love to hear um, if you are in the consistency club and you know who you are if you're in my consistency club program, which is an ongoing recurring membership which goes on and on and on and on for people that really understand health is about a long term strategy supported by a like mind community, like minded community. 
Um, that's a space for people that really, truly get the one tweak a week thing. Um, if you're in there, I want—I would love to hear what you think about this idea. Um, if you're in the Facebook group, I would love to hear what you think about it. And if you're out in the world, I would love to, to hear from you on social media or via email about what you think about this Um based on you running the household at home or buying food for yourself because it's an interesting conversation. And I think it's, you know, well, we should get more involved in food policy. I know it's as boring as shit. I know. I know I had to do these assignments. Feel sorry for me. <laughs> but I think it's something we should understand because food security and food uh, management and food policy and all of the bullshit rules and legislations that exist that currently produce the, sh- the food system that makes us all fat, sick and nearly dead is because we didn't take enough in, uh, interest in this type of policy and this type of governance. Therefore, when we were voting for politicians, it wasn't something we ever asked anyone. It wasn't something that was in the paper or on the news. And so it just kind of gets decided behind closed doors with a few angry uh, nutritionists like me <laughs> or scientists and doctors that are a small handful of people trying to fight the system, but we just don't have the weight. Um, you know, there's not, not enough of us and we really need the backing of the public. So, um, what do you think of this? And what do you think of me doing this episode, a food policy, uh, episode? It's, uh, it's interesting. Hey, something a bit different. Like to spice it up in this, uh, 200 and what are we on? 202 episode. That's pretty cool. Um, so anyway, I'm going to wrap this up here, but basically what I'd like you like to do along with hearing from you. So this is obviously the four argument. This is a podcast I've done for a sugar tax and I'm actually going to do the next podcast um, against the sugar tax because it's not all good news. Just like all policy, there's winners and there's losers just like life. It's a life lesson. Um, so, yeah, but if you've enjoyed this episode or took anything from it that you didn't know, didn't expect um, or think is an important thing to share with people that you know um, that need to buy food and groceries for their kids and families or themselves, um, please take a screenshot of this episode or share this episode with a friend. You can put it in a social media story and give me a tag. I know I'm not quite everywhere that I'd like to be, but I really, really do appreciate um, you being here. There's so many podcasts. There's four and a half million podcasts, not episodes, podcasts. So I want you to know that I'm genuinely grateful that you are here with me spending time learning about this kind of stuff that um, that I care about. And obviously, if you're still listening, then you care about too. And I think really matters for the future of the earth um, and the human experience of, of both ourselves and our children. So um, thank you. Thanks for choosing me and this podcast to spend your time with. It's very much appreciated. Um, All the links that you may or may not need are going to be in the show notes below. And I look forward to seeing you on our next episode. Bye. Thanks for listening to the How to Not Get Sick and Die podcast. If you love this episode and health information is your thing, then please consider subscribing to the show. And when you're done, head over to iTunes, Google Podcast or whichever app you use. And we'd be grateful if you could leave us a five-star rating and write a review sharing your opinion on the show as it really helps the podcast grow. Thanks so much and I'll see you on the next episode. Whilst 
presented that feature on this podcast endeavor to provide accurate information. It cannot possibly take into account your individual circumstances, and therefore the content on this podcast provided by any of the speakers is not intended as advice in any way for any individual and should not be a replacement for professional medical or health advice of any nature. Always seek advice regarding your personal situation from a qualified medical professional.